MSW Media. Before we get to this week's episode, please look in the description of this episode for a link to our very first listener survey. We really want your feedback so we can make the podcast better. Plus, if you fill out the survey, you can win an Amazon gift card. Now, let's get to the episode. This week, the nation was horrified by the image of Oscar Alberto Martinez and his daughter Angie Valeria dead face down in the murky water of the Rio Grande River. This image has drawn new attention to the Trump administration's treatment of migrants and comes on the heels of the administration's argument that a detention facility that failed to provide soap or a toothbrush to children nonetheless constituted sanitary conditions. Now, presidential candidates Julian Castro and Elizabeth Warren have called for repeal of the statute that makes it a crime to illegally enter the United States. How has the Trump administration changed our approach to immigration? What has caused the current crisis? And what should be done to reform our immigration system? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name is Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, the host of The Patty Vasquez Show, who joins us regularly on this podcast. Well, Patty, I have to say, um, this topic is a crisis and it's important every week. It's a topic that we really could be discussing all the time. And last week when the Trump administration had made the argument in court that children who were in conditions where they couldn't sleep uh, they and they were not clean, they didn't even have soap, that that was uh, sanitary conditions for purposes of a settlement. I thought, geez, maybe this will change things. And then it, it's only gotten worse, I think, since then. Just the, the And really the level of attention to this has is, is only grown. And when we were talking about this last year, you know, there was hope that we were moving in a better direction, that the, there would be something that would be done. Uh, there were a lot of people that were stepping forward, but we talked a lot about how it's you know it's, we're, there's no there's no will to send resources or to, to to cut this off where it's happening. I mean, the the whether it's the people who are profiting from these retention centers, detention centers, and I I, ha, I know that there's argument about how you refer to them. You know, we want to be distracted by the language of it, but how do you justify this? I asked on on social media, should you ever? Is it ever okay to put a child in danger? Is it ever, ever? And the answer is always no. It doesn't matter where, what their parents did or where their parents came from. It is never okay, and that should be across the board. And saying that they don't need to be clean, they don't need to brush their teeth, you have seven-year-olds who are caring for infants, none of this is, should be acceptable. And as Americans, we should be embarrassed and ashamed, and we need to do something about it. Yeah, I, um, I have to say the, the current crisis that we have 
um, and I'm will certainly we can talk to our guests more about it. Appears to me to be precipitated by the Trump administration's own policy changes. Uh, uh, the family separation crisis we talked about um, last year, uh, which you're referring to, was precipitated by the, the so-called zero tolerance policy, which right. we can talk a little bit more about later in the podcast. But also um, their treatment, for example, of refugees really led to um, or contributed to the death of uh, the man and his, his wife and his daughter that, we, right. that I spoke about just a moment ago. Um, it's shameful that our society treats anyone this way. Um, and it is really uh, amazing to me how far our nation has come in its treatment of immigrants since the time I was a young man. I mean, when I was a boy, uh, there was sort of a bipartisan consensus that immigration was generally a good thing. Uh, uh, even Ronald Reagan, George uh, Herbert Walker Bush uh, had that perspective. So it, it's really surprising to me that how much we've moved in that in the opposite direction. Well, I certainly have the perspective that immigration is a good thing because my mother came here from Mexico in the 1970s and uh, worked very hard. You know, my mother was uh, a computer programmer for the federal government and continues to be treated as though she's a second-class citizen. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and obviously she, you know, we all have our different path to get here. She's heartbroken all over this. Last week she was going door. I had a, I, she's in a, uh, she's not wheelchair bound, but she can't walk very far. So we went, uh, we went canvassing last week to make sure that those in our community who might fear of uh, being, you know, rounded up and, uh, and, and, and again, put in holding centers like this because, you know, th- First of all, they shouldn't have that fear. But beyond that, there weren't any, any there weren't even any resources to house the people that they were planning to round up last week, and that was part of why they they stopped the the process. Yeah, I uh, you know one thing I will just say: um, immigrants have built this country, mm-hmm. and my my grandfather was an immigrant, um, and I think a, a lot you know we we could. We could spend the entire uh, podcast talking about um, racism and white nationalism and right. white supremacy. And, um, you know, someone asked me the other day, well, um, are, you know, are, are you white? And it's interesting to me that uh, um, <laughs> when, my, when my family came to the United States, Italians weren't considered. Sure part of that uh, favorite thing you know it's interesting into that favored group it's interesting how um you know how really to me so much of our immigration policy has been infused with racism and racial bias and i also uh, a lot of it seems to come from like people will couch it in well i just don't think we actually should spend money on immigrants coming here there's a sense of Somebody getting something that you, that you, that belongs to you. That's what a lot of people seem to base that on. Well, I just, you know, I shouldn't have to pay. They shouldn't be able to get health insurance. They shouldn't be able to get, uh, you know, well, health care, I mean. They shouldn't be able to get access to fundamental things that, you know, that really, uh, it isn't something that, that they're taking away from you. It's mm-hmm. something that we're capable of doing. We are. We are, we are capable of being human and, t- and treating others with kindness. No doubt, and it's not a zero-sum game. In fact, immigrants contribute to our society. Right. Well, let, let me bring in our guest now. So let's bring in our guest, Anthony Enriquez. He is the director of the Unaccompanied Minors Program of Catholic Charities New York. He's also a lawyer who knows a lot 
about um, the issues that are facing migrants and immigrants and about the way that our legal system uh, has approached this issue. Thank you so much for joining us, Anthony. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So, Anthony, I'd like to start by asking you um, how it is that, in, in your perception of how our the, our immigration system has changed over the last 30 years. I, I think the average person listening to this podcast doesn't understand about the change, the changing way in which we've treated immigrants to our uh, immigrants. Uh, and there's been some important changes, uh, I'd say, certainly not only during the Trump administration, but prior to that, that have, I think, uh, set some important context for the current situation that we're in. Yeah, thanks. That's, a, I think, a great way to frame the issues that we'll be talking about. Uh, I think a lot of uh, politically motivated people and a lot of good Americans are very much all of a sudden interested in the immigration issue. And a lot of that coalesces around the things that we've heard Donald Trump say, both on the campaign trail and later on during his administration. The pictures we've seen of uh, people and children being held in squalid conditions in open air pens on the border. Um, and really some of the uh, just abusive conditions uh, that, that we've seen throughout the entire system. But it's really important to understand that Donald Trump didn't invent the laws. He didn't pass a single immigration law that uh, permitted him to do what he uh, is doing. And in fact, he just took advantage of the laws that were already on the books. And he did it with an infrastructure that has been built up over about the past 30 years, as you say, through bipartisan administrations, both Republican and Democrat. Uh, so I think an important fundamental touchstone are uh, a pair of laws that were passed in 1996 under the uh, Bill Clinton administration, in fact, uh, that really criminalized a lot of what we used to think of as issues of civil immigration law. Uh, that's the root of uh, criminal penalties being attached to people crossing the border. Uh, that is the root of some of our harshest detention laws, including mandatory detention <clears throat> for immigrants who are uh, simply seeking uh, asylum here in, in the United States upon their initial admission, and also for immigrants who uh, might have a, a criminal record, including a minor criminal record, you know, for things as in New York City, where I'm speaking from, as, as minor as jumping a turnstile twice, you can be placed in mandatory immigration detention, which looks exactly like prison. It is in a county prison in New Jersey uh, without opportunity for bail. You don't even get the chance to say to a judge, I'm not dangerous. I'm not a flight risk. Um, the other, some of the other stuff that the laws that I think the, the Trump administration has been able to take advantage of actually stretch far beyond uh, 30 years ago, you know, there, there's been talk of uh, punishing people for becoming what's known as a public charge. Uh, that is, if they receive any access to public benefits or, or uh, public health insurance, um, that they might be barred from becoming uh, a green card holder, a permanent resident or a citizen at some point. 
the roots of that was are really, you know, the 19th century. I mean, some of the language that we use to describe immigration law, uh, public charge, crime involving moral turpitude, you know, they just sound musty. They sound like something that someone from 1898 is talking about. And that's exactly what happened. You know, the, the first immigration laws here in the United States on a federal level were really a reaction, a racist reaction to Chinese immigration. Uh, uh, that was helping construct uh, our cities and our railroads in the western part of the country. And since that legacy has started, you know, it's been very easy in times of political turmoil for uh, leaders to take advantage of those laws and, and really make them as harsh and forceful as possible. So uh, this isn't just a Donald Trump issue. I, I like to say, you know, I hope that the people that are marching in the streets and that are horrified by the things that they've seen won't forget uh, and won't deactivate uh, when Donald Trump eventually leaves office, because this is really about a longer term a reform project for all of our immigration laws. You mentioned that the, uh, the some of these go all the way back to the the eighteen hundreds, and but uh, as far as the laws in, in nineteen ninety six, what uh, as far as you you understand it preceded that? What was the impetus for passing those laws under the Clinton administration in the way we know them now with the forced imprisonment? Well, you know, the Clinton administration, the zeitgeist at the time was really let's get tough on crime, let's uh, punish what uh, were then called super predators, right? Young, young people who live and breathe to terrorize us. Uh, that was really part of the Clinton uh, success political machine, you know, a, a, a sharp swing word to the right, basically, helping to bring the, the progressive Democratic Party much uh, closer to the center and even the right after the Reagan years in order to capture a larger slice of that moderate voter. Um, you know, the, the laws that were passed that really harshened our immigration provisions as well, they uh, uh, are, you know, called things such as the Illegal Immigrant uh, Responsibility Act or the, um, you know, anti, uh, you know, they have, they have allusions to death penalties and illegal immigrants and all kinds of language that we think of as, you know, in some ways is inflammatory, right? And it's focusing on the worst case scenarios and the terrible things that, that might happen. And so they really need to be seen, those laws, within the larger project of, you know, whipping up terror and uh, helping the American citizen, the quote-unquote average American citizen, understand that they were at risk from someone who was different from them and that the appropriate response was to incarcerate and deport that person as soon as possible. So parallel with, that, with the rise that we see of the incarceration state with the United States becoming you know, the highest per capita uh, in prisoner of its citizens, parallel with that was the rise of this really harsh deportation machine as well. So uh, another, uh, something else that happened uh, before Trump took office that I, I think has a significant impact uh, on the um, what we've been seeing, some of the conditions that we've been seeing uh, recently is the Flores Settlement. Uh, can you explain to us what that is? Yeah, the Florida settlement um, is a uh, nationwide lawsuit 
a federal lawsuit out of a California district court that really regulates the conditions of confinement of immigrant children who are in federal custody. And it arose out of our really heinous practices in the 1980s, uh, which is when we first started seeing more and more unaccompanied minors. Well, I, le actually, let me say this. Unaccompanied minors have always come to this country. We just didn't always call them unaccompanied minors. And so many of your listeners, you know, their grandparents or great-grandparents probably came here as unaccompanied minors. Maybe they came in through Ellis Island. And, uh, you know, there was no uh, nationwide uh, uh, panic over what to do. In some ways, we thought, well, you know, a 16-year-old, they're going to work, and, and that's that. That's an adult in some ways. Uh, and it's, I think, interestingly enough, as we sort of saw the rise of this idea of the child and the teenager and, and youth as something really sacred to be protected, we had to invent this idea of an unaccompanied minor as well. And uh, in the 1980s, what uh, used to happen was unaccompanied minors that were arrested at the southern border were simply thrown into adult immigration detention centers uh, in non-segregated populations. There were children that were strip searched. There were children um, that suffered abuse, sexual abuse and physical abuse uh, from guards. Uh, and so a group of children uh, formed a, a class action and sued the federal government for their treatment uh, that resulted in the Florida settlement. The government decided, you know, rather than fight this uh, up, we're because we'll probably lose, frankly, uh, we will settle this lawsuit and voluntarily agree to certain minimum standards uh, when we hold a child in our custody. And as part of that lawsuit, or excuse me, as part of that settlement, uh, the government uh, does have to keep youth uh, separate from adults. It does have to uh, provide them with uh, safe and sanitary conditions, uh, which we've sort of famously seen that portion quoted recently mm -hmm. in, in a, a law, uh, the appellate uh, hearing in the Ninth Circuit this past week. And uh, that has become the framework through which we view all children's rights. So subsequent to the settlement, there was another uh, uh, law called the Trafficking Victims Reauthorization Protection Act. Uh, and that was passed under the George Bush administration. And that also put in some certain minimum standards for the care of uh, youth in immigration custody, including, uh, you know, their mandatory prompt transfer from immigration authorities to humanitarian agency authorities. Um, and of course, I can explain that later if the audience is interested. Sure. Now, what I what I think is helpful for everyone to understand is that this settlement that the government entered into, I think that was during the Obama administration. Is that correct? Uh, no, the settlement was entered into before the Obama administration. Okay. Uh, you know, so, so it's been on the books for, for quite a while. Okay. And, um, but that is essentially when we, with that entire debate about the, you know, in the, the recent argument where I think a lot of our listeners have seen a Trump administration lawyer arguing that children who weren't provided soap or toothpaste, uh, were, were nonetheless, uh, um, living in sanitary conditions, it's because that the language of that settlement essentially 
um, is what is governing in many ways the minimum condition for for children who are being held in custody because that is an agreement that the government entered into as a result of this settlement. There's something called the cons- was it a consent decree that was entered uh, as a result of that? I, I presume. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, and in fact, in the link, the terms of the settlement itself say the settlement will expire as soon as the government puts some regulations on the book that essentially codify some of the protective measures that we have agreed to here. And they just never did that. So, you know, the reason that the settlement uh, is still in force today is because the government just can't get it together to actually make law. Uh, the things and the terms that it agreed to uh, to protect children when it decided to settle this lawsuit. What are some of the barriers to really, fi- I mean, s- settling these laws or, or amending them or figuring out a solution? I mean, is there are there lobbyists? I, I just am trying to figure out how is it just a, a complete inability to come to a consensus? What's your what's your take on it? Well, I think you have to understand the basic structure of how we care for unaccompanied minors uh, in order to really understand how complicated uh, it is and how many different moving parts there would be uh, in order to, as you say, enact this, uh, in order to kind of finally settle by law what are all the agreed terms. So when we, uh, when the government encounters an unaccompanied minor, typically at the southern border shortly after entry, she is taken to a, a CBP, a Customs and Border Protection Holding Facility. And those are meant to be extremely short-term uh, holding facilities. They're not equipped to, for people to sleep or, or eat comfortably. Um, you know, and they don't have special space set aside for children alone. So they're really just holding cells uh, in the border. And that's where we see... I think the worst and most terrible conditions. That's where we see conditions that amount to concentration camps, uh, as was famously said by Representative Ocasio-Cortez. And within 72 hours, by law, a child held in those conditions must be transferred from immigration custody to the custody of the um, Department of Health and Human Services. So uh, an agency, also federal, that has no immigration enforcement uh, objectives and is really just meant to care for the people that are are under the agency's aegis. Uh, Within the Department of Health and Human Services, they're actually cared for by a sub-agency called the Office of Refugee Resettlement. So, you know, the office that's working overseas with... um, refugees to help settle them here in the United States and provide them with the supports that they need to successfully integrate. This office also operates uh, a series of of over 100 shelters, essentially, across the country in various states that basically just piggyback off of a pre-existing state child welfare system. So in New York, for example, where I practice, there are a series of uh, child welfare Uh, agencies that in the past, for instance, formerly cared for orphans and maybe placed them in institutional care. And so they have a campus-like setting where some, uh, where they now receive unaccompanied minors and care for them temporarily. But many of these these youth are actually going to temporary foster care placement as well. That's the largest growing form of temporary care for an unaccompanied minor. So they're not held in an institutional setting, but rather they're placed with a family in the community 
that ideally speaks the same language as them, shares some cultural background so that they uh, can minimize, I think, some of the difficulties that might come with uh, a child who is really traumatized and has uh, just come from a long journey. And while they're in that temporary custody of the Office of Refugee Resettlement, they're not going to stay there. The objective is not for them to stay there as long as possible. It's really ORR is their acronym. Their objective is to reunify a child as promptly as possible with some type of family member here in the United States. So many of the the youth that are coming, they might have a a parent who already lives here in the United States, who maybe uh, they haven't seen since they were two years old and now they're 12 years old and, and they're trying to reunify with that parent. Maybe they have an older brother or sister that uh, has settled in the United States or an aunt or an uncle or, or some, t- some individual here with a pre-existing family relationship, uh, typically. And that person could be available to take the child off of the federal government's hand and house her, enroll her in school, provide her with medical insurance and accompany her to all of her immigration court hearings. Because of course, every unaccompanied minor by definition is gonna be in removal proceedings. The government's trying to deport them. Uh, that's why they're an unaccompanied minor. You know, they're someone who the government believes is out of immigration status, basically. And so we start to see all the different moving parts that there are with the care and custody. And there are massive fights, right, within the government. Well, we're gonna fund, we saw this last week in Congress, we're gonna fund uh, that's humanitarian supplementary aid to Border Patrol, but we don't want a cent of it to go to immigration enforcement. We only want it to go to bettering conditions for youth. But in fact, most of the youth should be forwarded as soon as possible to Office of Refugee Resettlement, who also has a funding crisis because, hmm. you know, the, the for various reasons, the, the government uh, doesn't adequately fund this. And so it, it's really a massive um, uh, issue of government intercoordination that uh, unfortunately hasn't uh, caught up, I think, to the gravity of the problem. I mean, starting in under the Obama administration is when we really started seeing youth arrive in greater numbers, um, in the, uh, you know, tens of thousands, actually, well, you know, something around 14,000 at the height of it a, a year. Uh, but I want to be very, very clear. You know, it's not that we're facing an unprecedented influx of youth or families or immigrants. We are at record lows. Uh, of recent arrivals at at the border, especially in comparison to uh, the years during George W. Bush. Uh, Not as many people are immigrating as in our recent past. It's just a greater proportion of them are women and children and families seeking refuge because of worsening violence in these countries. And so problems that we hear of, oh, there's a capacity issue. We just don't have enough space. We don't have enough room. These are government created problems. The way that the Office of Refugee Resettlement works, you know, it should be something of a revolving door. Essentially, a youth comes into your care within 30 days, she leaves your care because you found a family member and you've reunited them. But the Trump administration made some specific policy choices to, in, to lengthen the stay of care uh, in Office of Refugee Resettlement. And so it went from around 30 days under the Obama administration to over 75 days on average in the Trump administration. And that becomes a capacity problem because if a child's not leaving care, then there's not going to be space for a new child to enter care. But that's entirely a government created capacity problem that has nothing to do with 
more people are coming and too many people are coming. That's just us saying we're not going to adequately manage the resources that we have to handle this issue. Uh, and so that's what we have a capacity, quote unquote, problem. Yeah. One thing that I think would be useful uh, for for us to talk about is the the what's called zero tolerance policy, which is obviously another new policy that uh, arose with the Trump administration and how that inter- interfaced with the uh, rise of family separation. Yeah, I mean, that's another great point about a government created problem that suddenly turned into a quote unquote capacity problem. Uh, so a separated family uh, or excuse me, a child who comes with uh, an accompanying adult has different rights than a child who comes alone. Uh, the legislative and the uh, the legal framework for unaccompanied children is more protective uh, because, you know, we don't want to make the terrible mistake of sending a child in need back to a situation that's going to put her at harm. But those concerns are lessened somewhat where a child is coming accompanied by her parent or accompanied by a family member. And traditionally, when a child arrives within a family unit, the entire family unit is subject to what's called uh, expedited removal. Now, expedited removal is a process whereby the family gets an interview with an asylum officer to assess whether or not they have what's called a credible fear of return. And a credible fear of return means, you know, they can articulate some facts to me that show that they might have been persecuted in their country of origin, that they're afraid to go back to their country of origin because of that persecution. And so therefore they might have a a successful asylum claim in the United States and they should be placed in a removal proceeding. And for those unfamiliar, a removal proceeding is basically a deportation trial before an immigration judge. Uh, But for those who can't articulate what's called a credible fear, those who can't pass that standard, uh, then they are, are pretty, they're given basically an automatic deportation order and sent back almost immediately to the country of origin from where they came. And so we do this to many, many children so long as they're accompanied by their, their parents, their older brother, their aunt, etc. The family unit will be returned as a family unit to the country of origin because they couldn't make a case that they had a legal right to stay here in the United States. For unaccompanied children, it's different. They don't have to articulate that fear. You know, we're talking about, in some cases, seven-year-olds, so they just don't have the sophistication, and and younger as well, they don't have the sophistication to be able to, quote-unquote, articulate a credible fear, right? Right. So they're they're actually automatically placed in that deportation trial, that, that removal proceeding that I spoke of earlier. They don't have to pass that first hurdle in order to get there. And that means they're not going to be able to be deported immediately back to their country of origin. Rather, they have the opportunity to meet an immigration judge, find a lawyer, and uh, articulate their legal case uh, for why they can stay here. I, I should say this, this is true except for youth from Canada and Mexico. Those countries have special exceptions to this rule for unaccompanied children where they, those unaccompanied children can be immediately turned back to their countries of origin. 
One one issue that has arisen recently that's a particular interest to me because I have seen it's an issue I know a lot about and it is um, created a lot of disinformation, uh, particularly from uh, uh, President Trump and his allies, is the issue of the illegal entry statute. In other words, there's been some debate about uh, that some of the presidential candidates raised uh, just this week again about potentially repealing that statute, uh, which the Trump administration has been using uh, extensively um, as part of their zero tolerance policy to prosecute uh, people for um, entering the United States illegally. Uh, it's it, one thing that I think is a misconception is that uh, I think people b- believe or assume that when they hear something that the, that people, particularly on the right, call illegal immigration, that they think that that is always a crime or that it's usually a crime. Um, is that the case? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. And it actually brings us back to, I think, to your previous question, too, um, about issues surrounding family separation. Um, so I guess to answer you, first of all, no, of course, uh, you know, crossing the border doesn't always have to be a crime in the same way that jaywalking doesn't always have to be a crime, right? The here in New York city, it's culturally, we just jaywalk. It's, it's what we do. We try to get there the fastest we can. And imagine if the NYPD said zero tolerance, we're going to throw every single person in New York city that jaywalks into Rikers Island and we're going to solve the jaywalking problem that way. Well, pretty quickly, we would uh, end up with too many people for the jail, right? And all those people in squalid conditions, and there would probably be a, a very big uh, upcry. It's the same issue on the border. You know, the government has the discretion to charge this as a crime, yes or no. And historically, uh, they just haven't done that. It just, you know, it would clog up uh, all of the federal courts to uh, prosecute every single border uh, crossing as a crime. It would take judges and, and U.S. Marshals' attention away from maybe more serious, what we think of as more violent crimes. Uh, and so they haven't done it. But uh, the Trump administration, and particularly Jeff Sessions, when he was attorney general, decided that this was the way that we're going to convince others to not come to the United States. We're going to say, you know, if everybody that crosses uh, without uh, an entry permit or a visa is thrown into jail, that's going to send a tough message that no one should cross which, you know, empirically just hasn't worked out, right? I mean, that, yep. that, that kind of enforcement policy has been on the books, and we just haven't seen these uh, anticipated uh, uh, decreases in any kinds of numbers. But, uh, you know, the, the decision, the zero-tolerance policy decision to prosecute anybody, any adult who crosses the border is what led to institutional family separation. So I call it institutional family separation because it, you know, it is true that on an isolated small basis uh, throughout history, families have been separated by U.S. immigration. This you know, feeds into, as I said, this is not just a Donald Trump issue, right? We're talking about historical legacies mm-hmm. of racism on the books that, that really need to be tackled when we talk about these problems. But it is absolutely true that the it, rate and incidences of family separation have increased 
exponentially under Donald Trump. And, and a, a big piece of that has been this decision to prosecute every single adult that passes uh, the border. And so, as I said, you know, since the proportion of families has increased, that means that if we're prosecuting every single one of those adults, in order to do that, we have to separate the family. We can't throw a child into an adult federal uh, prison facility uh, because we want the adult to uh, serve the crime until the child just has to be strung along and punished as well. Instead, you know, by law, the child and the adult must be separated. And so the child is sent to Office of Refugee Resettlement Custody while the adult is placed in a criminal uh, prison, essentially. And that, what, what that turns into is turning an accompanied child into an unaccompanied child. It, this is not a child like, as a traditional unaccompanied minor profile, right? This is someone who came here with the family who maybe doesn't have a clear idea of why the family came because their parents woke them up in a rush one morning and said, we have to leave, we have to run, we're under threat of death. But they don't really understand exactly all of the issues. Uh, that motivated the family unit's decision to come here. Uh, and that, in turn, became a bigger capacity problem, right? So I had in New York, over last summer, I had over 400 separated children that were housed in the shelters that my team provides legal services to. And those weren't unaccompanied children in many ways, right? They looked like entirely different, their profile of why they came to the United States. And they were, in some senses, you know, taking the bed of an unaccompanied child, right? And so the unaccompanied children that came have to spend a longer time in a holding cell in CBP facilities because there aren't enough beds in the ORR facilities because of the separated children that we've rendered unaccompanied children. Mm -hmm. So it's, it, this, is, this kind of gives an example of how all of the moving parts of this system really coalesce into something so terrible as a six-year-old child who's indigenous speaking, who has been held in OR custody for months because his father is serving a criminal sentence for border crossing and so isn't available to take custody of him. And the indigenous child starts, starts to forget his own language because he's now housed with a Spanish-speaking family because there just aren't that many Cachiquel-speaking families in New York that are available to uh, take a child in temporarily while they're waiting for his father to exit criminal custody. Yeah, I, as a former federal prosecutor, I will say that uh, I think the analogy of jaywalking, um, you know, while it's not perfect, uh, is in the context of federal criminal law, it's apt in the sense that um, under federal criminal law, this is a misdemeanor um, a, entering the border. It's a, uh, a, in an illegal way, so you know. So that is punishable by only up to six months in prison. Typically, somebody receives time served for something like this, and you need a prosecutor to uh, present that case to a grand jury and get an indictment and show up in court and go through all the motions of the criminal justice process that you'd have to do for any more serious type crime and. Really, uh, what I think is important for listeners to understand is that federal law enforcement resources are limited. And so when you devote them to illegal entry, uh, you are taking them away from uh, other types of crimes. Like you mentioned a moment ago, 
Um, it's also worth noting, I think, and and I'd be curious what your thoughts are on that uh, on this. Is that my understanding is that many, if not the majority, of immigrants that are undocumented in this country did not cross the border illegally. Their visa overstays, and so they're not subject to that statute at all. In other words, the vast majority of people that are called by some ill quote illegal immigrants are actually not criminals by anybody's imagination because they're people who came here legally through a visa or some other means, and then they just, um, you know, have overstayed that visa. Well, that's true. And I think, you know, one of the issues here is that a lot of our laws are neutral on the books and actually very much racially focused in reality. And so who is the type of immigrant that can afford the visa process that lives in a country that is, you know, has a stable consulate uh, presence that can afford the plane ticket to come here on the tourist visa or the student visa. Well, that is going to be someone who has higher economic standing than many of the asylum seeking refugee uh, populations that we see. That is going to be people that are not, you know, that, that are aligning more with a Western European phenotype as well, just as a matter of, of geopolitics and the way economic resources are allocated in the world. And so, you know, we say, well, this law isn't targeting Central Americans. It isn't targeting uh, any type of immigrant. It's just a neutral law. Whoever crosses the border uh, illegally, quote unquote, then they have to serve the time. But actually, the people we, we know for a fact in reality, the people that are going to be forced to enter the United States through the border crossing are going to be coming from, you know, developing countries, from countries that uh, are uh, different, uh, that are non, non-European racialized. Uh, and that's exactly what, what's happened. You know, these laws target essentially Latino immigrants, but also African immigrants who come in through uh, Mexico as well, uh, and Southeast Asian immigrants as well, too, you know, as a substantial Indian population uh, as well, that comes in through um, uh, the southern border. Yeah, I I have to say um, it, it is there. There's been a lot of commentary uh, throughout the history of our laws about how you know the law professes to have a majestic. There's a famous quote about the law and its majestic equality uh, prohibits the rich as well as the poor from sleeping under bridges. Uh, or from begging in the street for bread, right? So, uh, you know, in other words, law that can appear on its face to 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 be neutral can have very very um, disparate impact. One thing I want to say, uh, and I'll then and then we'll have one other wrap up question after this. But one one question I do want to ask you because I think it's important is the Trump administration has claimed that they have ended family separation. Uh, Trump himself claims this often. As somebody who's familiar with the issues of separated children and unaccompanied minors, what is your perspective on that? That's not true. It, it absolutely isn't true. And so I, I, I think in order to kind of bolster my credibility on the issue, um, I, I have to explain a little bit about what my role is as the director of the Unaccompanied Minors Program of Catholic Charities Community Services here in New York. Uh, so, you know, all those those shelters that I spoke about with Office of Refugee Resettlement, every single one of those shelters, uh, the children in them are serviced by an outside legal service provider, a nonprofit legal services provider that comes in, meets them uh, within seven to 10 days of their arrival, gives them a know your rights presentation, screens them for some type of 
a humanitarian or other legal claim to stay in the United States and then provides them a lawyer uh, if, if they, in fact, do meet those criteria. And so that's how I know uh, on a daily basis whether or not there are separated children here in New York because I meet every single child in ORR custody here in New York. Uh, and there are thousands of them at any one time. Um, and, uh, you know, we started seeing separated youth uh, long before the zero tolerance policy had been formally announced, um, I remember my staff in, in, in January of 2018 saying, you know, something really distressing is happening. There are a lot of youth who uh, are, just won't stop crying. They, they form very strong attachments to us as adult figures because they're saying, where is my mother? Where is my father? Um, and, you know, as the world knows, uh, eventually it was announced that we were regularly separate, systematically essentially separating uh, parents from their children uh, as part of immigration policy. You know, Donald Trump says he ended uh, that, I guess, by fiat, but there's also a court order. There's a federal court order that says this practice is un unconstitutional um, and the government is enjoined. From, from doing this as part of immigration enforcement on a regular basis. And in fact, the government has an affirmative duty to reunite those families that they separated. But, you know, importantly, that order actually left a couple of reasons for which we could separate a family. And they were ambiguously worded. Uh, and so uh, some of those reasons were, well, if the parent has a communicable disease or uh, if the parent has a criminal history. And what's happened is those, those holes that kind of got left in the settlement, in the uh, court order are just now big enough for the government to drive a truck through. And so I've seen cases, for instance, where a parent that had HIV uh, was separated from uh, her child because, you know, that's a disease. It isn't a communicable disease, but, you know, the government thought, well, you know, it's a disease, so let's just do it. I've seen instances where parents had a disorderly conduct conviction. And that, you know, that's something that you get for sleeping on a park bench, basically. Uh, don't, don't be here. You can't be here. The park's hours are closed. So we're going to arrest you and charge you and, and convict you of that crime. And the government's saying, oh, you have a criminal conviction. We can separate you from your child for that. Uh, and so I see right now in, in, in custody in New York, um, I've seen over 100 children that have been separated after the uh, federal court already declared that this practice was illegal and unconstitutional and we need to stop. And it's because the government is taking advantage of these, these uh, holes, essentially, in the settlement and twisting it and, and finding any reason, any little reason it can to separate a family. You know, we all know if if... Let's go back to jaywalking. If I had my jaywalking conviction, right, for uh, crossing the street and the government said, well, you have a criminal record. I'm now going to take your child out of your home, you know, but you're a criminal. So that's that's the standard we had to meet. People would be up in arms. That's horrific. But in fact, that's actually what's happening on our border right now. You know, you mentioned earlier that, you know, these laws actually have been there for a long time. And you hope that when we stop seeing these images as much, people will still pursue uh, an improvement and, and some some way to resolve this so that it doesn't happen again and we don't continue to hurt people. But 
you know, a lot of listeners also want to know how can they help fundamentally right now? What can they do? You know, can they send supplies? Where can they donate? What, what would you say are the best places to turn right now if people really want to get involved and help these kids and these families? That's a very important question. You know, I think we heard uh, of many good-hearted and well-intentioned uh, people who, for instance, did send soap, toothbrushes, blankets, and pillows to uh, the Border Patrol facilities, the concentration camps, right, uh, on the southern border. Uh, in some ways, you know, I, I, like I said, well-intentioned, but I don't think the point is to make a concentration camp as, as comfortable as possible, right? But that's, that's not maybe the response that we should be going for. People ask me all of the time, well, how can I help? What can I do? I'm not a lawyer. Should I give money? Should I, what can I do? You know, can I, can I adopt a, a child as well? I hear, I hear that a lot of times, too. I truly, truly believe that the best way to help uh, is to be out in the streets, is to be loud, is to make this an issue for the Donald Trump administration, to make them stop to put the public pressure. I think about uh, many of the really radical uh, anti-immigrant uh, policies that this administration has enacted. The Muslim ban, for instance, uh, was, was horrific uh, at the time it was enacted. We were told, even if you have a green card and you're from one of these countries, you can't come back into the country. People ran to the airports, they made noise, they ran to the courts, they made noise, and we very quickly got a concession out of the Donald Trump administration. Okay, you're right, actually, green, green card holders, they can come back. Last summer, we saw uh, you know, many, many women, I think, leading the movement and, and packing the floors of, uh, of Congress and saying, we will not move until you stop family separation, arrest us all, we don't care. There's a lot more of us than you. And that's when we saw Donald Trump reverse and say, you know what? I don't like seeing family separated. I'm going to, quote, unquote, stop it. I think that is the best help. I really do think, you know, people have power and the, and the government is afraid of that power when it comes in numbers. And so, honestly, I don't think sending uh, a toothbrush to to the Border Patrol facility, or even, you know, sending money to me so that I can better pay the exhausted staff that I have, although it would be greatly appreciated and exactly what I do. I think the best way to help is to really make some noise, get out in the streets and make sure that the government knows that we do not want this happening in our names. You know, Anthony, I, I can't thank you enough for joining us. It's just so, first of all, some of what you're telling us is so powerful, but I, what I really like about it is you helped us per, to give kind of a broader perspective that these problems in some ways are simple, like if a child is, is being uh, 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 mistreated or in inhumane conditions, then that's just unacceptable, but also they're complex and they're they've uh, been created over a longer period of time. So I, I can't thank you enough. Thank you for your work. Thank you for, for having me and for the opportunity to speak uh, directly to the listeners. I, I think it's, uh, it's great that people want to get informed and, you know, together, I think we're, we'll all have to, to make this change together. If you enjoyed this episode, please look in the description and fill out our first ever listener survey. We really want your feedback, and you'll get a chance to win an Amazon gift card. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast 
Go to your app and review the podcast and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. 